0: So, I'll introduce um, the study the the same way that I have, um, by way of reminder, by way of introduction. The book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentile churches in and around Ephesus. Um, There were two types of people um, in those days, according to the way that the Jews uh, viewed the world. Um, There were Jews, and then there were Gentiles. Um, That Gentile was just anybody that wasn't a Jew. Um, very easy uh, delineation. Um, not much, uh, not much um, ability to, to have any fuzzy lines there in between. So you're either Jew, you're a Jew or a Gentile. You weren't both at the same time. Paul was a Jew, a former Pharisee who had been taught perfectly all the laws and the commandments of God and of the Pharisees. And uh, the Pharisaical way was well known as being the one that had the most truth and that followed the way of God the best that there was to offer um, back in those days um, according to the Old Testament law. The book of Ephesians is split into two parts. The first three chapters, which we went through a long, long time ago, talk about how God has made a way for the Gentiles to be saved along with the Jews and how awesome and incredible that is. The last three chapters contain instruction and warning against the things of the world which come naturally to the Gentiles and the things of God which don't come naturally to the Gentiles. This epistle was written directly to the Gentile churches so it contains instructions on things that mostly pertain to the Gentiles and the way that the Gentiles think and have been brought up. And when we talk about Gentiles, we're talking about us. Um, None of us have been brought up in the ways of the Jews. Uh, We've been brought up in the ways of the church, but not the ways of the Jews. And so these things are not natural to us either. We see evidence of every single issue in the book of Ephesians in people around us today who don't follow God. The Jews had the law of God already from generation to generation, so they had a good idea of what was acceptable to God and what wasn't. Transferring those concepts to the Jewish church was easy, but the Gentiles had to be taught from scratch. And that's why Paul spent a lot of time in detail into instructing these Gentiles in the ways of God. Okay, that's the introduction. In our last lesson, we finished with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 20. And we talked about being filled with the Spirit and what that means in our lives. Being filled with the Spirit causes the things of this earth to grow strangely dim. It helps us to love and encourage our brothers and sisters in the church. And it helps us to thank God for everything, both good and bad, that happens in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 continues in the same vein of thought and finishes it. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Just like the other things we talked about in the last lesson, this is only something that can be accomplished when we walk in the Spirit naturally in ourselves we wouldn't ever submit ourselves to anybody else especially if it isn't someone we really respect and admire but the bible talks about us submitting ourselves to each other in the fear of god it doesn't say those that you like it doesn't say those that you respect it doesn't say those that you want to be around It talks about submitting ourselves to each other in the fear of god when we submit ourselves in the fear of god Bible is telling us that it's not a natural submission, where the other person can tell us or force us to do something against our will. But it's a godly submission, where we consider our brothers and sisters to be higher and more important than ourselves. And what happens when you consider someone to be better or higher than you? You always give them respect. You want to be with them. You pray for them. You encourage them. You love them you listen to what they have to say, you take on board any constructive criticism given in love. Now that doesn't give you the license to tell other people in the church what to do or how to live their lives, because you should be submitting yourselves to them at the same time. Can you see the beauty and the perfection of what Jesus has called us to do and how, and, and how to see each other and how to treat each other? When we truly submit ourselves to each other in the fear of God, There will be no bickering, no gossip, no harsh words, no despising or hating, no divisions, no cliques, no envy, and no jealousy. But there will always be a respect and a love for each other because we're submitted to each other. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 actually finishes off the thought and flow from the last lesson. It's it's the, the last part of that. But I deliberately held it back for this lesson. And that's because Ephesians chapter 5.21 and 522 are linked. And it's easy to miss when you realize that 521 finishes a section and 522 starts a new section. Your brain can easily switch off and not realize the flow of the scriptures, not see the context. In Ephesians 5.21, the church as a whole should be submitting themselves in a godly way to each other. But for the wives, it's different. They shouldn't be submitting themselves to everybody in the church, but to their own husbands only. Marriage between a man and a woman brings about a special relationship of oneness and submission, which spills over into their relationships with others in the church as well. And no wonder, because God set up the institution of marriage in the first place. It's interesting to note that there are some cultures in which the wife also comes under a certain amount of authority of some of the husband's relatives as well. By specifying that wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands, not anybody else's, God is setting out the way that a marriage should be, a special relationship between one man and one woman only. From the book, the the Bride's Pearl, a commentary on Ephesians authored by a UPC minister Reverend Brian Kinsey we should note that Paul discussed the duties of husband and wife, not their rights. Submission is not slavery bondage or subjecting oneself to demeaning abuse it is recognizing the husband's God-given authority to lead the home when a wife submits to her husband's leadership she honors God's plan. Leadership is not dictatorship, nor is it a license for abuse. A bit further on in the commentary, it says, However, while husband and wife are co-equal marriage partners, only one person can lead the home, and God intended man to be that leader. Besides being the only way to please God, it is the only way to maintain unity and peace. Have you ever been in a team where there was no set leader? you know what happens? You get continual struggles for power from any number of members in the team and nothing gets done because everybody's constantly arguing and trying to get the upper hand and control over the group. Or you get nobody willing to take charge and nothing gets done, same result. By having a set leader, decisions can still be made and work can still get done even if all of the members of the team completely disagree with the others because you have someone that has the final say. By God setting a leader in the marriage relationship, it avoids all of these ugly realities and allows the marriage relationship to function even when both parties are not seeing eye to eye. However, this only works when there is a willingness to submit to the God-appointed leader. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. God has set an order in marriage which isn't popular in today's modern way of thinking. But what God has set in place, popular opinion and the opinions of national and world leaders and society can't remove or change. If we follow current events, we realize that there is a popular swing towards women being more important, competent, and capable than men in leading anything, households included very popular point of view nowadays and we shouldn't be surprised because Satan and his demons are doing everything they can to corrupt anything that God has put into place. Don't think that it's only people in society to blame although people have the capacity and ability to be wicked all on their own. The Bible talks about people in the millennial kingdom where Satan has been bound from influencing the nations not following the way that God has set out And directly receiving punishment for their disobedience, which gets worse the more that they disobey. So, mankind will always make their own choices, whether they're influenced by Satan or not. But when there's an influence of Satan, it gets a whole heap worse. Anything that turns a lot of people away further from God, Satan has some sort of a hand in. That is his specialty. Bible in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, talking about Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The Bible isn't implying that every single person who isn't following God has had their minds blinded by Satan. Sorry, the Bible is implying that every single person who isn't following God has had their minds blinded by Satan. And Satan's pretty smart. The Bible talks about the wiles of the devil. What's easier to do and what's more effective and powerful? Satan and his demons individually blinding the mind of every single person by visiting them personally? Or Satan and his demons influencing leaders in society to make something against the ways of God popular and acceptable? and Satan and his demons influencing leaders in society to make the ways of God seem confusing and unrealistic through misinformation, make it seem outdated and ridiculously strict. So that anyone who looks at the Bible, the church, and God from the outside will think, Oh, I have to give that up to follow God? I have to change that? Why bother even looking further? If Satan can get people en masse to believe and accept the same wicked thing, then it's a lot easier to keep them that way. And the more things that Satan can get people as a whole to do, believe and accept, that are against what God has put in place, the more foreign God's ways become to the person on the street and the harder it is for someone to leave all of that and follow God. And it has the added bonus feature of attempting to influence and confuse those already following Jesus, those in the church, to accept these things as well and draw them away from God too. So it's kind of a double-header. When we look at things that Satan has had the influence of in, in, uh, in this world, for example, God has set out standards for morality. And Satan has been gradually able to influence each generation to be a bit more wicked morally, sometimes a whole lot more wicked than the last. Yes, God has used righteous people to bring reforms and hold the progress of wickedness at times, but the God of this world just keeps working behind the scenes again, and God allows it to happen. Because God wants people to serve him by their own free will and their own free choice. And because God has always given mankind a free will to believe and serve who they choose, anyone not following God will serve Satan instead in one way or another. That's because there are only two choices, God or Satan. Satan. Who are directly opposed to each other. Many people think that they're living the way that they want to live. Well, that's not true. You're always influenced by one side or the other. When a leader of a country or a nation doesn't follow God, they spread the influence of Satan and his anti God ways. And when you have a succession of leaders and influential people that don't follow God, things get worse and worse. You only have to look at the kingdoms of Israel and Judah in the Bible to see that. In general, each of a line of wicked kings was more wicked than the last one. You can read that in, in black and white in the Bible. Until a king that feared and followed God brought some righteousness back into the nation. And it's easy to see the same thing in the leaders of cities and nations in the world today. They don't follow God. They don't believe God and They just take what their predecessors have done and turn it into even more wickedness and more things that are against God on an accelerated rate. Each successive leader just turns the nation away from following God just that little bit more and sometimes a whole lot more. And the people as a whole just follow blindly along. People as a whole are are sheep. And uh, they will follow what is popular, and they will follow what is believed to be popular. That's why our witnessing and testimony to people outside the church is the only thing that will start to turn people's heads and hearts to God. You see, there are very few people that come to God without anyone having witnessed to them. Very, very few. Some get a, direct, a revelation directly from God, for example, the Apostle Paul in the Bible. But they are few and far between. And God has given the church the general responsibility to reach other people. God has put his faith and his trust in us to reach this lost and dying world. And he's not going to take that responsibility back and do it himself. He's given it to us for better or for worse. That is an incredible thing to realize. That God who knows all of our faults, failures and flaws, trusts us enough to give us the responsibility of bringing other people to him and that he's going to work with us as we go and we do what he has asked us to do verse 24 therefore as the church is subject unto Christ so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything God has still said this order in the marriage relationship and for a very good reason the Bible calls the church the bride the wife of the lamb And also in Revelation 21, 9 and 10, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. When we get to heaven, we're going to be part of that new Jerusalem. And it's going to be... Uh, an incredible relationship, an incredible thing that we have because we have followed Jesus on this earth. The Bible talks about it being a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant, where the wife, the church, the people who follow God are in a marriage relationship with God. Marriage is the greatest possible relationship that can be had between two people on this earth. And marriage is a type we talk about types and shadows, how something that God has put into place is, is, um, has some resemblance of something spiritual um, that is to come in the future. Marriage is a type of the type of relationship that God wants to have with his creation. Jesus enters into a marriage covenant with the church as a whole through the blood of his own sacrifice on Calvary. And for that marriage covenant to work, it needs to be exclusive. His bride needs to submit to him and him alone. His bride should not be submitting herself to anybody else, should not be listening to anybody else tell her what to do or how to live. That is something that is between Jesus and his bride alone. And there should especially not be any submission or listening to anyone outside the church who are following their own ways and the ways of Satan. And it's the same way for a husband and a wife. They should be listening to each other and building their own relationship together, not listening to other people tell them how to live their lives. There is always godly counsel, as provided especially by the pastor, and anything that is spoken in that respect is ignored at your own peril, because God will speak to you through the pastor. But if the wife will submit herself to her husband's godly leadership, then there will be great blessings on the marriage relationship. But if the wife refuses to submit herself to her husband's godly leadership, then she is at odds with God himself. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The love being referred to here is not an emotion which can change with your moods, but it is a state of being. A husband should be willing to lay down their lives and gladly lay down their lives to protect their wife and their family. God expects nothing less than the example that Jesus showed of his love for the bride, the church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word here refers to water baptism administered with the spoken word. For example, what we say in baptism, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. It is water baptism that sanctifies and cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness and makes us worthy of coming before God. Verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The ultimate goal of Jesus' sacrifice is for the church to be alive and be worthy of entering into heaven in that relationship, marriage, uh, marriage relationship. His incredible sacrifice meant that the death that was threatening us because of the weight of our own sins that we were powerless to prevent has now been taken by himself instead. Just like a murderer threatening a wife with a gun and the husband steps in at the last second to take the bullet instead, Jesus' sacrifice means that we can live And not just live, but we are made perfect in him through his sacrifice. Verse 28 So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we husbands should love our wives as much as we love ourselves. For any guy who thinks that they're God's gift to humanity, that could be a tough ask. But for every other man, and particularly those with a low self-esteem, it might seem that we don't love ourselves much at all. But the Bible's not talking about feelings, or about men combing their hair in the mirror for hours to be as slick as possible. So how do men in the church in general love themselves? We take care of ourselves and make sure all of our needs are met. We make sure we develop ourselves spiritually to continually get closer to Jesus. And we strive to reach our maximum potential. So in like manner, we husbands should love our wives in the same way. We should take care of our wives and make sure that all of their needs are met. We should be encouraging and guiding our wives to a deeper relationship with Jesus. And we should strive to see our wives reach their greatest potential verse 30 For we are members of his body Jesus' body, of his flesh and of his bones After all we as the church are in the same marriage covenant with Jesus Jesus takes care of us and makes sure all of our needs are met Jesus encourages us and guides us to a deeper relationship with him and Jesus does all that is in his power to help us reach our greatest potential in him He does everything that needs to be done as as the, the head of the marriage verse 31 for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh God always meant for marriage to be between one man and one woman until death separated them all the way back in Genesis verse 224 Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, refers back to that verse, when the Pharisees came and asked him a question. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife; and they twain, or two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. You see, divorce was never in God's original plan. It continues on in verse seven of of Matthew 19. They say unto him. Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffer you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Only divorce resulting from infidelity is given as not being adultery. All other reasons for divorce are stated to be adultery by Jesus himself. But even infidelity should not be used as an excuse to get a divorce. They were unfaithful to me, so I am entitled to a divorce, to divorce them now. Phew, lucky escape, I'm not sure how much longer I could have lived with them anyway. It's not an excuse. If the husband and wife can be reconciled even after this extreme scenario of infidelity, and it would not be an easy process. As No two ways about that then it would be better for them to be reconciled because God has still made them one flesh the God given exclusivity of a marriage is brought to light in this verse as well from the bride's pearl again in order to establish a new family a man must leave behind his former family parental interference has ended many a marriage It is difficult for two people to establish their marriage if their parents constantly try to intervene. It is understandable that parents have a difficult time staying out of their children's marital difficulties, for they want what is best for their children. That's only natural. But it invariably makes matters worse. God's purpose is for the man to leave his parents to establish his own life with his wife. Verse 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. This has been a great mystery down through the ages, but it is all revealed now that we can see Christ's marriage covenant relationship with the church. Christ is the head and we are his body. We are one flesh together. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The husband is to love, to protect, to nurture, to encourage, and to nourish his wife. And the wife is to respect her husband even if she doesn't agree with everything he says, and submit herself by choice to her husband's leadership because it pleases the Lord and sets out the pattern for how we should serve the Lord ourselves. So, really what... I've done is is just teaching tonight, it's not been preaching but I've gone through the next few verses and it just happened to be about marriage and it just happened to be about God's relationship with us in the marriage relationship and the marriage relationship between the husband and the wife and the people around them as well and God sets things in, in order for a reason and He never does anything without a reason and a purpose. And even when things seem to be unpopular, even when things seem to not make sense, God has put it in there for a purpose. And when we follow the ways of God, when we do everything that God wants us to do, then there are incredible blessings to be had. But when we decide to do things our own way, when we decide not to take on board everything that God has for us, then there is something wrong. Then there is a resistance against God and His ways, uh, God Himself and His ways.